Lord God, thank you for this day. Thanks for the joy of being together. Thank you for your love for us, for your word. And help us now to listen, not just with our heads, but with our hearts, so that we can actually connect with you deeply and be changed by your word and spirit, so that we can go on and be a blessing in this world. We ask this in your name, Lord. Amen. So this chapter, uh, this little section of the book of Acts, as Kat said, is just an amazing section. Uh, In fact, the scholars reckon it's the most important part of the whole of the book of Acts. Many scholars think that much ink has been spilt on this. And uh, so what we're going to do this morning is really look at four things from this book. We're going to look at the four things that happened in this little section. We're going to think about what Paul saw, what Paul did, what Paul, what Paul saw, what Paul felt, what Paul did, and what Paul said. And as we do that, we're going to think about what we see, what we feel, what we do, and what we say. And then we're going to go out and be different. That's really it, okay? So, the first thing we're going to look at is right here, uh, what did Paul see? Okay, what did Paul see? And then we're going to think about, well, what do we see? So, verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, by the way, Athens was uh, its somewhat faded glory. Its, its uh, best days were behind it, but Athens was still the intellectual and cultural a center of the Roman Empire, enormously significant, still the, the sort of the epicenter intellectually for the whole of the, the known world at the time, and, and deeply religious, and the center of all of the sort of the Greek religious thought as well. So here we are, Paul's waiting for them, he's in Athens, and uh, he was greatly distressed to see what? What did he see? that the city was full of idols. Uh, And so what were the idols that he saw? Well, the the entire Greek pantheon of gods were represented in temples and on street corners and in homes. There were idols covering every conceivable god. And uh, and the Athenians were very religious. Now, got to just have a little bit of cultural awareness here. We suffer quickly we suffer from what's called chronological snobbery. So when we read that the Athenians were very religious and they had lots of idols, our temptation is to think, well, they were very primitive people, weren't they? Unlike us, we're not, we're not religious. We don't have idols like that. But, but then back then, of course they were religious. It's easy because they were, uh, which is just really not true. Chronological snobbery says because something happens now, by definition, it's better than what happened, you know, five minutes ago. Or, or five years ago, or 500 years ago. But really, that's not true. We've advanced in some ways incredibly, but really all of Western thought, as many people would argue, is, just, is but a footnote on Socrates. It's just a footnote on Plato and Aristotle. We are just, we're intellectual heirs of these highly sophisticated thought-out people. So, what are the idols? Well, the Greeks, they didn't really believe that if they carved you know, the goddess of love, they carved a little statue and they worshipped this statue, that the thing they carved with their hands, that there was great spiritual uh, power for life in this little thing they carved. They weren't primitive in that way. I mean, that's a, that's a silly reductionist view of them. They were just like us, which is that they would have had this little idol as a physical representation that they believed that life ultimately was about life. 
That's what an idol is. When we have a physical representation, in a sense, a little carved statue or shrine that stands in the place of this idea, this value that says, you know what, life is about love. And if I have love, then my life is complete. If I don't have love, then my life is empty, right? Same with uh, the God of War. Well, what's the God of War stand for? Well, the God of War says, if I have victory, if I have power, if I have status, then I'm secure. Okay? It's not that this little thing, you know, you rub the belly of the God of victory, that'll give you victory. That narrow, superstitious view, while it's common uh, in all cultures, actually, there's a much more sophisticated and realistic view that says, no, we understand that, that this little carved thing won't do anything for me, but, but what I believe is that this is ultimate. Okay, so that's what Paul saw. And, uh, and he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, it's interesting here, this word full of can actually also mean um, there's a connotation of weighed down by, sort of staggering under the weight of all these idols, right? Um, crushed by the burden of these idols, as it were. So now, that's a Paul saw. What do we see? If you and I walk out into Dar on Darling Street after church, or even if you just look around here, or you go into the city, or you go on social media, if we go into our culture, what do we see? Well, we don't see lots of, actually, I was going to say we don't see lots of little temples. We really do. Actually, we see temples, little temples, all the way up and down this street, right? Little, you know, you go in and there's a little counter where you, you bring your, offer your offering to the gods and special temple servants in special dress are assigned for periods to work there to then as, to receive your offering. And as they receive your offering, they give to you certain benefits and blessings. And it's open for periods, and, and, and your, your life is shaped by the rituals and rhythms of attending these particular temples. And if you're really, you know, when you go out in the suburbs, we aggregate those temples together into one grand temple, don't we? Uh, Westfield Malls, you know, it's a, it's a grand temple with lots of little mini temples all around, all served by dutiful priests and priestesses who are there to receive our offerings as we go in to find life. What's happening right everywhere? So, again, we don't think that... It, I, I mean, maybe you do, but I don't really think that you think, or anyone in our culture thinks, that if I buy the latest widget, that will really... That's, that's what I'm living for, the latest widget. I, I don't think I really believe that. But what do I believe? Well, I believe that, that, that if I go and I give myself to this thing and I get this new thing... That somehow the, the benefit and the value and the association with this new, uh, associated with the slight dopamine rush I get from the purchase, that, that this act of consumption will actually rescue me from the boring tedium of my everyday life. That the act of consuming something new will actually give me hope and a future. And, and the greatest fear in our culture is to be poor so that we can't afford to consume. Because if I can't consume, then what am I? I don't just consume products, I consume experiences. Oh my goodness, what if? What if I don't have enough money to be able to travel overseas when I want to? Says the guy who's flying overseas tomorrow to go and do a father-son road trip with his son. You know? Like, what if I couldn't do Oh my goodness! 
So, so it's the idol, right? That says that the, the, the capacity to consume becomes the thing that I need to have to make my life worthwhile. There's many other idols, aren't there? Like the things that we make ultimate. Love. Oh my goodness, yeah. If you don't have love, you don't have anything in our world, do you? Power. Status. And just like the Athenians, if we look, if we look below the surface and we actually study ourselves and what's really going on, we are full, our city is full of idols. In the same sense, we're crushed by the idols. We're, we're weighed down. They promise us so much, but they actually are a, are a terrible burden. Let me just give you one example that struck me recently. One of the great cultural and intellectual uh, thrusts and idols of our culture is the, the idolatry of self-creation. We are, we are free of any external constraint upon ourselves. So the great idol is freedom. Freedom to be whatever you want to be, who you want to be. So no longer do you have to do what your parents told you to do. Right, you, in, the, in the good old days, if, if dad was a plumber, you were a plumber. If you, you know, and, and you were a plumber because your granddad was a plumber and your great-granddad. So that was just what you did, right? And, and if you were a woman, then you, you had a very, you know, you, you functioned as a woman and as a wife and as a mother in the way that your mother did and your grandmother did and your great-grandmother did. And what mattered was being a good wife and a good mother or a good plumber or a good carpenter. And it was, there was a givenness. You didn't have to create yourself. In that sense, you weren't free. You, you had to live within the boundaries of what was given to you. Uh, that has been thrown off now. We, we live for the idol of freedom. No one can tell you what to do, right? There is no givenness anymore. Heaven forbid, you can work out how to make your marriage work. You don't, it doesn't have to be, thank God, just the way your parents did their marriage, right? You don't have to parent the way your parents did. You, you, you know, which is great at one level, tremendous benefits of being free. But a crushing burden, right? Because now, I can't just work out that I've got to be a good father in a way that's given to me and a good preacher in a way that's given to me. Now, if I'm really going to be alive, I've got to create me from nothing. Not even my biology is fixed and given anymore. Is it? Like it, it's, and I'm not saying this in any disparaging way, but this cultural trend of radical, blank slate, idolatry of freedom to create. And at one level that's great, but just like the Athenian idols, it's actually a crushing burden to have to create yourself from scratch with no givenness. Like, who am I? What am I? How do I make life work? Not even my gender is fixed anymore, let alone my, my vocation and my vision of the good life and the true and the beautiful and my vision of how family should work. It's all up for grabs because I'm free. So there's enormous anxiety. It's a crushing burden. Like, how do you, you know, you've now got to make yourself. Now, thankfully, uh, a lot of us are sort of past that. <laughs> We've made ourselves, for better or worse, we missed that. But if you, if you or your friends, if you've got kids who are teenagers now, let me tell you, they are crushed by this idolatrous burden. And I spent, you know, all of our sons just finished year 12. Let me tell you, the endless conversations I've had on the basketball court 
um, not on it as we watched Oliver and, and Freya play sport, with other parents whose kids are journeying through year 12. The anxiety amongst parents about the performance of their kids is enormous. Why? Well, we live in a knowledge economy, and a knowledge economy means how well you do at school correlates with how much money you're going to have, the kind of career you're going to have, which correlates with the kind of human being you're going to be, your capacity to create yourself, to purchase, the lifestyle, the security, the health, the, 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 the being that you are, all comes down to your intellectual capacity and how well you do at school. So the anxiety and the burden is crushing. It's an idolatry. Now, let me say, freedom's a good thing. Money's a good thing. Success is a good thing. Love's a good thing. These, these things are good. But when they become ultimate, when they become the thing that we have to have, they become an idol, they function in our lives with this crushing burden, and it's greatly distressing. And we are as full of idols here in Sydney as Athens ever was. We just don't see them. We're as religious as the Athenians were. So, uh, he sees them. That's the first thing. So what do we see? And we've got to keep training ourselves to see, to see what's really going on in the world. Well, the second thing is, uh, what did Paul feel? Right? As he saw this, what did he feel? Well, he was greatly distressed. Right? Now, what does that mean? Well, actually... This phrase, greatly distressed, is used in the Old Testament to describe how God felt when his people, when Israel, went after other gods and betrayed him. He was greatly distressed. He's a jealous God. It's, it's wrapped up in this concept that God was jealous of the affections of his people. And when they worshipped other gods... It had the effect on God that, uh, that adultery has on a, on a partner in a marriage, for example. Right? He's jealous. He's hurt. He's distressed. So Paul is not just distressed because, oh, they're not going to church, or my church. There's something far deeper at work. Uh, here's a way to think about it, right? Imagine if uh, your kid, one of your children, marries someone and you go, oh, it's beautiful, and you love your kid greatly and deeply, as of course you do, and, you know, 10 years into your child's marriage, your child's partner has an affair and, uh, and blows up the marriage, you would be greatly distressed, wouldn't you? Greatly distressed at the behavior of your child's partner. Greatly distressed because your child's honor and being and value was being absolutely violated and trashed by the behavior of their partner. The violation of that covenant bond of commitment and loyalty and fidelity being ruptured by the, the behavior of the other. So you would be distra greatly distressed. That's exactly the word that Paul is using. Because he says, you know what, in the spiritual sort of existential realm, we are made to be in a, in a relationship with God of which marriage is but a pale imitation. That is a relationship of utter, complete, covenant, loyalty and steadfastness, inviolable, where God gets our greatest affections and our deepest loyalty. 
He is the being who gives us meaning and purpose above all else. And you know what? Every other thing, money, sex, power, they're all good things, but they're never primary. And Paul says, no, no, you know what? When we make these other things primary, we put them in the place of God, and that's the same, that's the kind of inner dynamic of spiritual adultery. And you know what? That should be enormously distressing to us when we see others do that. And I'd suggest enormously distressing when we see ourselves do that to God. Right? Think of what it's meant. I mean, the other way, you, you can, if you want to think, you imagine if you, you know what it's like if you're a kid, when, if you were a child and, and I, you know, if you saw one of your parents split up and you, this came out that your mum or your dad had an affair, you'd feel such distress on behalf of the wrong party. Now, what do we feel about, uh, about our sisters and brothers in this great city of Sydney who, who are doing this? Uncon- they don't even know at one level that, this is, that they're meant to love God. They're, they're unaware and they're just, they're just you know, violating that fundamental allegiance to God all the time. What do we feel about that? Well, I want to suggest there's a few feelings we feel. One, I think sometimes we feel just a hint of spiritual and moral superiority, don't we? And maybe you're even feeling that now. Well, phew, at least I'm not like them. Those silly Balmain people, drinking coffee, making money, I'm here in church, not better than them. I mean, now you've never admitted, I know, uh, so I'm just putting those words in your mouth and you may not feel it at all, but I know that I feel that just a little bit, I'm so glad I'm not like them. Here's the other thing I sometimes feel, maybe you do as well. It's a probably an even uglier thing to admit. And we sometimes feel just a little bit of envy. I used to feel this, um, uh, particularly when I was younger. When I was a, when I was a teenager at uni, I'd look at my friends, uh, and at the surface, who were just going into this, you know, teenage boy. Like I'd look at them, I'd go, man, these guys are, they are able to go out to parties, they're able to get hammered if they want, they're able to pick up girls, have as much sex as they can possibly get. And it all seems to be so good. And here am I, I'm stuck in youth group. And I'm going to church. And I'm like, oh. And I just feel chronically guilty about my sexual behavior. And so it's not even any fun, right? When you're a teenage boy, it's like, oh, I just go, how can I just be like that, you know? And of course, now I'm a middle-aged bloke. It's a little different. I don't envy anyone's sex. I just envy their money. It's like, oh, you know, oh, Lord, you know, make me a Christian, just not yet, you know. Oh, I mean, because listen, there's a, like, if you, if you really worship money, you could actually make a pile of it. And if you really worship God, you're, you're not necessarily that likely to. Right, so, yeah. Uh, so, and, and what, I'm, what I don't often feel. It's just this, this great distress at the spiritual and relational predicament that people have got themselves into with God. Because I don't see through to what's really going on. 
and I don't feel it, and, I, and, I, and it gets confused with my envy and my superiority and my pride. And I, no, no, Paul didn't. He just greatly distressed. So I think that's that's a question for us, right? How do I how do I feel that? How do we feel that for others? There's the third thing, though. Uh, what does he see? What does he feel? Uh, and what does he do, right? So look at this text, right? So um, he sees this, he has this emotional response, and then there's a little connective word here, so, or therefore. What does he do? Well, uh, he moves towards the Athenians. He goes to them, full of love and respect, to learn about them, to care for them, to bless them, to meet them on their terms so that he can help them connect with God. That's what he does. That's what he does. Now, uh, that's unusual because here's what we tend to do, right? Um, On the one hand, what he doesn't do is he doesn't uh, withdraw into a little holy huddle. That's actually, that's a great temptation, isn't it? You might have heard all of this and you go, oh, look at all the complexities morally and spiritually and the challenges of Sydney and the Western world. And you go, you know what the right response is spiritually? It's scary out there. It's challenging out there. So let's just batten down the hatches, heat up the burning oil to pour on the heads of any visitors and, and, and not be threatened at all, right? Let's, let's us stay pure and holy. Let's us do our religious thing. And the, the extreme of that at one level is the, uh, the Anabaptists, the Amish. If you want to see a modern day example of that lived out. But the impulse is not just lived out, say, in the Amish in Pennsylvania. The, in, the impulse is, is within every religious group that says, no, no, I'm, I'm actually, the world out there is bad. So I sit in a holy huddle and I, I lob kind of moral hand grenades into the city of Sydney and I go, oh, Oh, your views on human sexuality, not as good as ours. Oh, you know, whatever it is. Oh, you're not as welcoming as refugees as us. You know, whatever it might be. Oh, you're all greedy. You know? And and we sit in a little holy huddle and we feel so superior because we're scared. We're just holding on. And we come together to... Because the world's hard. And it, look, it is scary and it is hard, right? It, like, life is hard, for sure. Full of moral challenges out there. None of the ethical issues we face are simple. But the holy huddle is not what Paul does. And he goes out and he walks around the marketplace and he goes to where people are. He starts in the synagogue, he finds the Jews, he talks to the religious people. Then he just goes around to the, just the marketplace where people gather and he just talks to them. And then he ends up in the Areopagus, the very center of intellectual learning in the, in the Roman Empire. So he doesn't withdraw. But the other thing that you can't do uh, is, um, I'm going to put it this way, uh, a dualistic assimilation. Sorry, I got into some big words there. Assimilation. Uh, which is a dualistic assimilation sort of is the flip side of that that says, you know what? I'm not going to be a little distinctive holy huddle. I'm just going to be like everybody else. 
I'm just going to be like an Athenian, man. I'm going to, I'm going to do my church thing. So this is the dualism, right? It says, I'm going to come to church on a Sunday, and for this hour and a half, I'm going to be different. Because we are different, right? As much as we try to pretend. Like we're different. We're weird. We're here for an hour and a half in, in this weird building, singing weird songs uh, with a strange bunch of people. You know, like, but, so this is weird. We're all religious for an hour and a half. The strategy of assimilation then says, well, you know what? When I go to work tomorrow, I'm going to be just like everyone else. There's going to be nothing different about me. I'm going to go and work and make money and reproduce and buy houses and sell houses and do everything just the way everybody else does. And then next Sunday, I'm going to come back and maybe I'm going to drop in on a small group on a Wednesday. But what I do on a Wednesday night in a small group on a Sunday morning, that's my religious stuff for the rest of the time. I am just like everyone else. That's not what Paul does either, does he? He goes in to go and do what? Well, the answer is, the third strategy, he goes in to renew and bless the city. Respectfully. Like, he knows their, their, their own poets. He knows their religion. He understands them on their terms. He loves them. So that's the, and, and, and yet he doesn't become just like them because he uses all that knowledge and respect and that love that he has in order to actually show them the deficiencies in their worldview and in their religion and help them connect with the one true God. So he goes in from a heart of love to bring renewal and blessing. That's, the, that's actually what Christianity is about. We are a transformationist, renewal-bringing religious movement. We're not an assimilationist or a holy huddle uh, uh, segregationist movement. We, wherever Christians go, when God is at work in us, we go to bring renewal and blessing and transformation, to affirm what we can affirm from a place of love and respect, but then help people connect with the one true God. And that changes cities and cultures. And that's a good thing, right? But it means you've got to overcome the dualism. And you've got to say, who you are tomorrow at work is the same as who you are sitting in these chairs. And you've got to join those dots. Right? You got to fail. What does it mean to bear witness to Jesus, to over to overturn idolatries uh, in your own heart, firstly, and then in the way you go to work tomorrow, and the way you spend your money, and the way you do your recreation, and the way you do your parenting, and the way you do your aging, like everything, everything has to be thought through and lived through under the rule of Jesus in order to be to love and serve and bless those around us. Now. Um, I used to think this was bleedingly obvious. Uh, but what I found over 25 years of leading churches is, is, you know what, it's really hard to do option number three like Paul did. Because <laughs> we actually feel much more comfortable in holy huddles and we feel much more comfortable just becoming like everyone else. But that, that third place of being so grounded in our own experience of God that we can be secure and confident in Him and then go out to be a blessing without compromise, without moral superiority, without being in a holy huddle, but loving and serving on their own terms, people around us. That's hard. And I see churches all around uh, the city of Sydney who, who, who haven't figured this out. And I don't know that we've really figured it out, right? I see us, I see us becoming, I see churches all around Sydney, even though we talk a big game 
about evangelism and loving the city who, who still function really as morally superior holy huddles. And, 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 and you know what it is? It's, it, very pointedly, it comes down to who is the church for? Is the church for us? Or is the church for the city? And I think the Bible's really clear. The church is for the city. The church is for the world. Because God is for the city. God is for the world. And, and the paradox is, the, 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 which you all know, I'm sure, when we live in light of God's plan to say, I want to be a blessing, a renewal, a force of spiritual, cultural, and social renewal for the city, when we live for the world, then we actually find church incredibly satisfying for us as well. But when we live as a holy huddle, or when we just assimilate, we rob the church of spiritual power and we become just like anyone else. And it ceases actually to be an exciting adventure. So, uh, it's hard. But that's what Paul does. He goes into the city to go and bring renewal and blessing. The final thing we've got to ask ourselves then is, uh, what does he say? And gosh, he says a lot. (laughs) He says a lot. And what he says is an amazing uh, unpacking of the whole... uh, He starts with where people are, And then he unpacks the whole counsel of God, starting with creation and ending with judgment. People of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an answer to this inscription to an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. He says, I understand where you're at. I know what you're looking for. I see the gaps in your worldview. And you know what? I'm going to help you connect with God. This thing that you're looking for more than anything else, I'm going to help you. So what does that mean for us? Well, um, think about it. If one of the big idols in our culture is freedom, which leads to the need to create ourselves, you go, what are people really looking for then? Well, actually, you know what? how you connect the gospel? They actually, listen, everything you're looking for, the power to, to be unique and amazing and free, everything you want there, that's what God wants for you as well. There's a creator God who made you and gave you the capacity for choice and for freedom. And you know what? When you get to know this creator God, you won't just find the pressure to self-create. You'll find God will make you a far better version of yourself than you ever could have. And this better version of yourself will go on for all eternity that, hey, guess what? You won't just, you won't just have freedom here to enjoy money, sex, and power, but you will go on and rule worlds, maybe even rule universes in the new creation. Oh, that's going to be good. And you can do the same thing with money. Why do you want with love, with power, with success, with work? You can, we, you can start to show how everything that our culture is after actually finds its great fulfillment in the Creator God and in his redeem, the redeeming love of His Son. That's what He does. He does this for the Athenians. We need to learn how to do that here. And we'll jump right ahead and end in verse 31. This is how He ends. Uh, he says this for. He has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. So, (laughs) what's he saying? And what do we need to say? He's saying to the Athenians, hey people, 
the good times won't go on forever. They just won't. There's going to come a time, a day of reckoning. And, and on that day, you know what? You're going to discover the limits of every, every, everything you've lived for. The, the turning away from God, as good and wonderful as it might have felt through the course of your life, it's going to come to an end. And the one true God is going to say, listen, I've got to hold you to account because you've broken this relationship. and You've broken my heart. And that's hard, right? To be told the good times aren't going to go on forever. We hate that. I was reading a book uh, two years ago. It's a great book uh, called This Time is Different, A History of Financial Crises Over the Last 500 Years. And you know, wired, hardwired into every human, into our way of thinking is, we're different. This time it's different, right? The, the, the Dutch tulip mania, one of the world's early asset bubbles that on record where, where people were spending you know, a year's wages to buy a flower. And everyone's like, tulips are the most important. This massive acid bubble inflated, and then like a month later, the bubble bursts, and oh, it's just a flower. Why did I spend a year's wages on a flower? Well, in every culture, every time an acid bubble is increasing, this time it's different. It's, it's, we're different. It's, you know, whether it's the tech boom in the late 90s, whether it's the GFC, you know, the US subprime crisis in 2007, 2008, whether it's a 60-year asset bubble in Australian housing, whatever, this time it's different. And you know why we think about like that culturally? Because we think about that way about ourselves. My life's different. I know, and you know, everybody else dies. But that's not really going to happen to me. Now, slowly over the course of life, that, that's chipped away, right? For most of us. But mostly, I mean, that's the only reason you can get 18 to 25-year-olds to, to enlist and go to war. It's the only reason, you know, First World War, you could get waves of men going over the top to get mown down by machine guns because deeply woven into their heart of hearts was the sense that, well, I'll be, diff I'll be the one. I'll be the different one. This time it's different. I'm different. It's not going to end badly for me. I can have it all. And you may think this as well. I'm not sure. You may think, look, Mark, I can, I can actually live for myself. I can live for money. I can live for status. I can live for success. I can live for love. And I can live a bit for God. And it will all be okay. And the Apostle Paul and God says, no, it won't. I love the thought. <laughs> love the thought. It would be great if you were different, but you're not. You're not. Every one of us will be judged. And in the end, what's going to matter is, do we love God with our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength? And do we love our neighbor as ourselves? Is he the primary? Is God the, has God captured our hearts? That's it. And, and, and the good times will end. Life will end. So listen, prepare yourself for the judgment. And, and, and if, you, if you think there's any doubt, which you may think, He's given proof because he's raised the judge, Jesus, from the dead. So you know what? It's, it's look back in time and space and go, yeah, okay, oh, Paul, you're right. He rose from the dead. I'd better get ready. Our culture needs to hear that, right? Because, oh my goodness, we think the good times will never end. At every level here in Australia, we are the lucky country. Quote, I know the quote is misapplied and it wasn't meant to describe this and it was a, actually a bit of a pejorative statement in the original context. I understand that. But we believe the good times will just keep on going. And I 
that's not true at any level. And you know what? It's not true for you or for me. Judgment is coming. Justice will be done. And are you ready for that? And are your loved ones ready for that? Are they turning to the judge, Jesus, and saying, man, forgive me, have mercy on me, save me? Because that's what Paul called on them to do. Now, that's what he saw. That's what he felt. That's what he did. That's what he said. And you know what happened? Pretty much the same thing as happens to us. Look at it, right? (laughs) Some of them sneered. Mm. Not everyone's going to believe the message. I could say, you know, uh, and I, isn't that a relief? I sometimes think to myself, if only I was smarter or more spiritually powerful or could unlock some formula like the Apostle Paul, then everyone would always accept the message about Jesus. Like there's got to be something wrong with me that they don't all get it, right? Because quite clearly not everyone's got it. There are more people, you know, at the markets today than in here listening to me. Like that's annoying, right? And I think if only I'd figured out a way, maybe it's me. Okay, no. Some people, they sneered at Paul's presentation of the message. They just aren't interested. They think it's stupid. And what do you do with that? You just go, yeah, I'm deeply distressed by that, but you keep on praying for them. But some of them, and and some of you, you may be here today visiting, and you may go, yeah, I just think this is all stupid, Mark. But thanks for coming. Keep coming back to think that we're stupid. I really don't mind that. But some of them want to hear again. They need more information. Right? They just go, tell me more. And so we as a church need to not give up hope. We need to say, okay, we'll give you more information. We'll do the work. Come on in, kids. Come on in. Come on in. Welcome back. Come in. Find your family. You're back. Have fun. We're just wrapping up here. Oh, beautiful. Thanks, Eliza. So uh, as a church, we need to realize that conversion is a process, right? People need time. You've got to take them seriously. Uh, We all... We all understand that. We've got to do the work of being open. You know, as Russell prayed earlier, to welcome them when they come into our gatherings and at Christmas and and all these wonderful things we do, but then say, you know, gently and caringly, say, let me help you take the time to investigate this. And some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. So some will believe. Now, uh, that's what's going to happen at Darling Street. If we see the world the way Paul did, if we feel about it the way he did, if we do what he did and we say what he did, in our context, some will sneer, some will want more time, and some will believe. And we've got to plan and organize and pray and prepare for that. It's pretty simple. It's pretty exciting. My great excitement and prayer for the year ahead is that we see more and more of this. And not just 2019, but the next five years. 10 years, that this continues and deepens, and that we see more and more people come to know Jesus here, and that the city is blessed and renewed because of it, because that's God's plan. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you love us with a great, unending, eternal love. I pray, Lord God, that you will uh, fill us with the same spirit that filled 
the Apostle Paul so that we can see the world the way he did. We can feel the distress spiritually of our world and we can then move in love and respect into our world to bring renewal and blessing as we tell them the wonderful news about Jesus. And Lord, when people sneer at us, help us not be full of despair. When people need more time, help us not be lazy and want to short-circuit the process and not organize ourselves to give them that time. And when people come and believe in you, fill us with just incredible joy because that's what it's all about. And we ask this in your name, Lord. Amen.